Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Wind's Howling, a companion podcast to The Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. My name's Abu. I'm Brett. And Brett, are you ready for the greatest high school reunion of all time? I am ready for that because I will <laughs> never go back to mine. And I imagine <laughs> if I was ever as successful as yet, actually, she might not even be that successful, but if I ever had the ability or especially the fuck it all attitude she has, yeah. I would probably go back and go back. I actually, because it was like a high school reunion, but she went back to the students and just right. was like, hey, what are y'all doing here? Oh, this is my room. Let's show you all of this stuff that you think you know, but here's the real world. Right. Here I am. Let me burst your bubble. Let me tell you what the real world is like. Talk and about Dream Crusher. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no kidding, no kidding. I mean, we're going to really dive into that today. I think that's a huge part of this episode. Yen's arc and Yen's story have really come to, uh, not a conclusion, but this is a huge turning point for her in this episode, particularly. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into that, of course. But first, as we always do, Brett, let's start off with a quick recap of the episode, and then we'll dive into our three key moments, and then we'll wrap up with our final thoughts. Siri enters a busy marketplace and asks the man for directions to Skellige. A kind-looking woman warns Siri that it's not safe here if you're alone. Then it's the same as every other place, replies Siri, walking away. Geralt watches an endless row of Nilfgaardian soldiers crossing the Amal Pass. He secretly meets with Mausak and Sintra to warn him of the approaching danger and to make sure his child's surprise is safe. Assassins arrive and Mausak teleports Geralt and himself to safety. Calantha discusses war preparations with her captains when Geralt and Mausak approach. They try to convince her to give up Ciri and allow destiny to take its course. Geralt promises to keep the girl safe from the approaching Nilfgaardian army and bring her back after the danger is gone. Calanthe agrees. In the marketplace, the kind woman offers to take Ciri home and give her food and shelter. Ciri steals her horse and rides off instead. In Sintra, Calantha tries to trick Geralt by giving him a false Ciri. Geralt learns the truth and confronts the queen, who, as it turns out, still doesn't give a fuck about destiny. Geralt tries to plead instead with Ice, who once defended the Law of Surprise, but he too no longer wants to give up his granddaughter. Ice asks Geralt to promise he won't come back. Geralt refuses and is captured. Yen visits a Nilfgaardian dig site and finds Istrid, who is rocking a killer beard these days. Turns out she's here to try and rekindle an old flame with her one-time lover. Istrid turns her down and she's approached by Vilgefortz, who asks her to return to Eretuza with him. At Eretuza, Yen is haunted by her memories. She visits her old room where she meets the young sorceresses in training. She takes them on the wildest acid trip of their lives and shows them <laughs> the secret eels that power the school. Taisea interrupts, and their heated exchange is cut short by an emergency meeting of the Northern Mages. The Mages debate whether or not to help Sintra against the oncoming Nilfgaardians. Stregobor calls for a vote, and the decision is nearly unanimous. The Mages will leave Sintra to its fate. Taisea and Vilgefortz decide to lead a small group of rebel mages to go help Sintra, and Taisea begs Yen to join them. In Sintra, the Nilfgaardians have breached the gates and are assaulting the castle. Geralt escapes his cell moments before Mausak goes to find him. A wounded Calantha sends Ciri away before leaping from the window to her death. Geralt sees Calantha's body and realizes all hope is lost for Sintra. Fast forward to Ciri camping for the night with her stolen horse Klopp. Or is this one Clip? Her friends from Sintra find her and try to turn her in to collect the bounty. Ciri falls to the ground in a trance and says a prophecy out loud, echoing the lines Kahir said in the previous episode. The campfire goes out, and we cut to black. Yes, yeah, so that scene right there, when we hear those words and she gets in that trance, I love that so much. That actually became 
on my stream, when someone hosts me, it plays that and shows like really? her going into that trance. Oh, that is just... Oh, that's so funny. Oh, that just... When it goes in, man, chills from it. Yeah, absolutely chills. Like a really well done scene um, from a like cinematic perspective. Like it just zooms in really tight on Siri's face and then her voice changes and it, you know some shit's going down and it may or may not be good. <laughs> and it hits on the interconnectedness of everybody because, yeah... The last words of the previous episode was Kyrie saying, "The time of the sword and axe is nigh," right? And that's pretty much what this starts. Verily, I say unto thee, and then uh, she leads right into that. So it's like there's something interconnected here. Before before we get into all of that, let's dive into our three key moments that we chose for this episode. And I think we have to start with probably my favorite part of the episode, and probably the the most significant part of the episode, and that's Yennefer. Let's start with her journey to that Nilfgaardian dig site and her meeting with Istrid. What did you think about this scene? I loved how Istrid was standoffish, like, what is she doing here? It's that almost toxic ex that you love to see, but oh, you know you don't want to. And then how they played it off and how... You can see them going back and being, oh, they're good together. Oh, she does it. Now, her motivations are the question there. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a second. But I agree that there's there's a little bit of banter here, right? Like, I don't know if you felt it, but I felt some of the sparks were still there. Some of the, some of the fire between them is still there. And I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's this idea of, an ex showing up and you start just being pulled right back into your old flame and thinking back to the time you spent together. But I question Yen's motivations. I don't question Istrid's. I think he has genuinely been heartbroken, gotten over it, and is now obsessed with his work, which is what he tells Yennefer, uh, and has ultimately moved on. Whereas Yen maybe is still sort of trying to figure her emotions out. Speaking of emotions, I think the big theme of this episode, and I wonder if you agree, for me, the big theme of this episode was growth. I think we saw all of our characters grow here and change from the experiences they've had in the season thus far. Geralt has changed, Ciri has changed, Yen has changed. Yeah, they've all, for the season-wide arc, it seems like they've all crossed the Rubicon. and Exactly, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, they've made up what they're going to do with... Extent of Yen, well, Yen made up what she was going to do. It's just Istrid rejected her advances, you know, blocked that back out to half court there. So, <laughs> and again, so she's staying there, but as we'll see with another character shows up and takes her to her new direction. But with everyone else, they've come up. Geralt has absolutely made his mind up what he's going to do. But with Yen, again, we can only assume, and we know that we're on a straightforward timeline. And the last time she was really there, she came to Nazir right after the dragon hunt, right after uh, Borch said, you're never going to do this. She's pissed at Geralt. It's very clear that she had a breakup with her new boyfriend and she's going back to the old one to yes, maybe... Yes. And it, but I do think it's also, I think she's legit in it. I think she wants to be now stable and to go have her boring court life and he can dig with his mo- uh, for his monoliths and it be that way because... She seemed genuinely stunned when he rejected her. Yes. Yeah, I actually, I agree 100%. This felt genuine. The first time I watched this episode, the entire time I was watching this conversation with Istrid and Yennefer back and forth, and I was trying to figure out what Yennefer's play was. I was like, what is she getting at? You know, what's her angle? When I rewatched it, I was like, wow, this I think is genuine. I think Yennefer has maybe not turned an entirely new leaf, but she definitely wants something with Istrid. I think she wants a life that she hasn't had up to this point, that she hasn't had in the last 30 years, that, that life of maybe comfort and love and family. And I do think that she has, at this point at least, what we've seen from her, that she's kind of given up on curing that infertility. She's accepted what it is, and I think that also plays in when she, when we'll talk about it later on, when she goes back to Eratusa and kind of starts with all that going on, is I think she realized it's done. It's over. Nothing's going to fix it. 
Yeah, I agree. I think she really took Borch's words to heart, or at least did some soul searching in, in the time between the last episode and this one. And I think for the time being, and that, you know, we don't know what will happen in future seasons or where they'll take the character arc, but based off of what we know in the books and based off of our assumptions here and the growth we see in this episode, I agree. I think she has stopped her quest to try and cure her infertility and is now searching for some other purpose in life. I think she's finding herself in limbo and doesn't quite know what she wants or where to get it or how to get it. And uh, um, of course, Istrid is not here to play ball. He is ice cold. At one point, Yennefer says, I may be missing you, which is like such a weird ex thing to do, right? Like everyone's ex has said that, said that to them at some point. And Istrid's response is, the Yennefer I knew didn't miss anyone. Oh, and Ouch. yeah, he, he's there and I think he bides his time and he's biding his words and he's just waiting to pounce. Because after that, he also makes it clear that there was at one point, there was a time when she could have chose him or chose power and she chose power. Right, and right. And he just gives her a sad look and then walks out like, I am not dealing with this. I am over you. I love what I'm doing now, and I know if we get back together, you are not going to be good for me. And I'm the biggest Yen apologist out there, and I'm not even saying that she's in the wrong or has ever been in the wrong with her motivations or her attitudes. Speaking of the growth, when they were first together and they broke up, if you will, she was like, oh, I'm going to go to court and I'm going to do my thing there and it's going to be all this. Well, she's been at court again for decades and realized it sucks it's boring. It's not what I thought. These kings are fools. All this other stuff is just nonsense. So then she comes back thinking like, hey, I can just go chill there. I'm not out to do all this stuff anymore. Like she's not out to be this all powerful thing anymore. She's been humbled a lot. And so here she has changed, but Istrid just doesn't want to go back to it. So both of them, I think are, I don't think anybody's in the wrong here. She's changed, but so has he. And he just doesn't want it at this moment. Absolutely. 100% you nailed it. It's that idea of growth and maturity. In their own ways, they've both grown and matured. And Istrid recognizes that Yen is maybe not the best thing for him. It's all very heartwarming for me, at least, to know that Istrid went through a tough time, focused on his work, decided what, he, what would make him happy, and uh, is now sticking by that. So it was nice to see that. And as Yen said, he's bought in to Nilfgaard. And yeah. he says, what, what did you think about the humanizing of Nilfgaard here a bit? I mean, I think it's good because, again, we're getting his point of view. That's what he believes. But we'll see it later on where it's interspersed when speaking about Nilfgaard, all the prosperity they bring, and it's, or I should say, intercut with scenes of them slaughtering everybody in Sintra. And that's what they bring. And yeah. It, yeah, so people that buy in, and again, every single empire out there, whether it be the Roman Empire or whether it be anyone, you can talk about what Nazi Germany did, you can talk about what our American imperialism has done. The people living in here will say, oh, America's great. It brings all of this prosperity. Well, the people that get killed during the takeovers of these countries are going to be like, yeah, that's a hell of a prosperity you bring. And Nilfgaard <laughs> brings destruction, but if you survive it and you buy in, like what happened with the Roman Empire when they conquered those people, you'll be fine. You just have to realize it's not your way of life and you have to do their way. Right, right. If you can buy in and, again, all about benefit from it. Depends yeah. on which side of the war you're on. Yeah, if you can benefit from it, great. If you get slaughtered from it, Nilfgaard is maybe not so hot. Sucks to suck. Right, right. So Istrid here, of course, turns Jennifer down. She's crestfallen and he walks away. And then almost immediately, Vilkaford shows up. I was like floored by this when I first watched. I was like, holy shit. Because for some reason, when I was watching the first time, I totally forgot Vilgefortz was a character that was going to be relevant here. <laughs> well, another thing, too, is I'll admit I didn't really look too much at the casting. And so when he shows up and the way they make it seem also as if he's some guy that's going to hit on her, like he's watching yeah. and he's seeing a breakup. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he just swoops in and she literally's like, fuck off. Like, like, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, hold up. You know, I'm not going to do that. And then, yeah, Vilgelforce of Rogavine. And I was like, oh, hell yes. So Vilgelforce shows up here and he plays Yen like a fiddle. It's quite impressive. 
you know, he he really plays that Tasea card and he tells Yen, hey, we need you back at Eratusa. Uh, the Nilfgaardians are approaching Sintra and we need to do something about it. Come with me. And at first she's like, fuck off. I don't want to go back to Eratusa. Why would I go back? And then he drops the whole like, hey, you know, Tysaia said you were her best student. And Yen reveals a lot here. She really reads into that and she says, oh, Tysaia called for me. She she wanted me back. She needs my help. <laughs> and Vilgefortz is like, yeah, yeah, totally. Come with me. So I thought I thought it was a very good way to establish that Vilgefortz is a smart dude. He's a sly dude. And uh, he knows how to play people. And he doesn't lie like Yen accuses him of doing he just misleads and let her lets her play into what she wanted to hear and she wanted to think oh to say it needs me oh the great perfect all powerful to say it she's gonna <laughs> beg me for help and no not exactly so let's this transitions nicely into our second key moment because here yen heads to eratusa with Vilgefortz, based on this assumption that Tysaia wants her there. And our second key moment is, again, I'm sort of cheating here. I just wrote down Yen and Eratusa, which is, he <laughs> that's like not a moment. That's like a huge arc in the episode, but I feel like we need to touch on as much of it as we can in a reasonable amount of time. Yen returns to Eratusa, and it is quite haunting for her, right? Like literally haunting. We hear the echoes of her trauma as she walks these halls and she's reliving all of this abuse and trauma that she went through from Tysaia and from her time at Eratusa. It's it's quite affecting. I think it was a very powerful scene. And then when she goes to her room, at first she ch chastises them and she looks in the mirror and it's her old self. Which, that was so powerful. And that's right? another thing I meant to say Going back real quick with Istrid, Istrid almost made it seem like he didn't like her changing. When he leaves, he said, at least you kept your eyes. And that was almost Istrid's way of saying, I don't like this new you. I liked you when you were quote unquote imperfect because you were a better person. And so I do think that plays into here. When she sees her old self, it's where I'm not saying it's she's thinking about what Istrid or thinking, oh, what a man says or anything like that. But when one of the students says, oh, you're so beautiful, she says, it's overrated. It's not that yes. good. And this kind of echoes the millionaire or the person with a ton of money when it's like, ah, you know, having money is really not that great. More problems. It's like, what's easy for you to say? And so it's easy for Yen to be like, oh, it's overrated being absolutely gorgeous. I was like, don't say that. Right. I'm drop dead gorgeous and it's like not that great a thing. Well, you know. To younger Yennefer when she was, you know, when she was literally a hunchback, it was a huge thing. It was the thing that she wanted more than anything in her life. She wanted power and beauty. So, yeah, the, the 30 years have definitely sort of uh, jaded her and changed her perspective. And she's become one of those millionaires who says money doesn't matter. And she says looks are overrated while one of the girls has half her face burned or some kind of scar and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure she's going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's nothing. It's not that big a deal, is it? It's like when people like me, yeah. hair, like, oh, having hair is not that great. I'm like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> to someone bald like me. <laughs> yeah, well, let's actually back up and talk about where that conversation about the beauty uh, happens. Because it's happening, like, mid-acid trip. <laughs> botany. Let's learn some botany. Yeah, so I think it's interesting she shows up here and she's kind of like, I got the sense, I don't know if you read it this way, I got the sense that Yen was like annoyed that these girls are having a good time in school, you know? Like, how dare they actually enjoy being here when my time here was so traumatic? And she wanted to sort of burst their bubble, I think. Yeah, I think it was a mixture of that. It was a mixture of what she knew they might become that we'll get to. And a mixture of when she finds out that they're there because they have money or from good families, that they yeah. didn't even necessarily have a conduit moment. And once she learns that, she knows what their future is going to be. Yes, yeah. And that is a huge, morally questionable thing that Eratusa is doing. The, like, that, that little girl is only going to become an eel. She has no magical abilities. <laughs> and I think that plays into Yen's, not even a frustration or an anger that she's not even taking, she's taking it out on them, is that she knows she hates this place and she hates what it's become and her friends. 
And when she's talking to the eel, she asks, Annika, is that you? Yeah. And they show that flashback to it going in there. And she's like, these are my friends. These are the people that were struggling with me. And these are the ones who just weren't good enough. And sometimes the only thing people can do is die. And she does not like that at all. Right. And I think that plays into this bubble that she's trying to burst, right? The, these young girls are here thinking they're going to become beautiful, powerful sorceresses, just like Yennefer, right? They look up to Yennefer, and she is trying to tell them that, no, this place is abusing you, it's using you, they tell you lies so that you are dependent on them for the rest of your life, and they take away your ability to create life so that you're tied to them forever. And I think she's, she continues to sort of hammer this home that, like, you are not here for a good reason. You are here as a tool for the institution that is Eratusa. And I think Yen is in the right here. You know, like Eratusa is do- doing enough morally questionable things for me to be like, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, and it goes back to that being used and abused. She's been used and abused her whole life. And here she knows they're going to be used for the power of Eratusa. And she also makes a difference between magic and real life. As she says, the ability to create real life gets taken from you, as opposed to the ability to create life in the magic, like create all the flowers or create anything in that, and something has to die. But she's really letting them know it's not real, and you're never going to have that real life. Yes, magic to her is artificial, which is notable, I think, because at this point in her story, she believes that the affection she has for Geralt is because of magic. So she thinks that's artificial too, right? Like, I think a lot of her motivations here for being distrustful of magic is because of this connection with Geralt. She thought she was in love with this man, and it turns out that he used magic, he used a wish, and now she can't trust her own feelings because they might be artificial. And I think it ties into that as well, the fact that she tries to instill in these girls this idea that, like, don't trust magic. The school takes away your real, actual ability to create life and trades it for you to teach you how to create just artificial bullshit. But of course, during this eel lesson, mid-eel lesson, Tysaia dr- shows up. And it is, I don't know, I'm still scared of Tysaia. And when she walked into that room, my heart dropped. I was like, oh, shit. Like, mom just caught me, you know? Like, it felt like mom just walked in the room and you were smoking weed and you, you got caught. Yeah, those students, I'm sure they're, uh, their bums got a little tight there. But Yen, <laughs> no, Yen looked back like, okay, what, what, what are you going to do? Like, because she's not lying. And so I think... Yeah, she, she's what, not lying. Yeah, what her thing is, okay, to say... And I think she might have been waiting for not an apology, but like, okay, is this where she... Begs for the help, and to say is like, nah, you ruined one life. Stop there. Oh, ice cold. Yeah. And it, it's so, and again, I think Tessaia is putting on a front here in front of her students, right? She has to. Because later in the episode, we really see Tessaia sort of break down, right? She effectively pleads and begs with Yennefer to help them in this quest with the rebel mages against Sintra. And we see that there's some genuine affection. We'll touch on it here in a bit during the, during the mage conclave scene, but here she's ice cold. She's the Tysaia that we knew from 30 years ago, from when Yen was still here and back in episode two, that ice cold, powerful Tysaia that can walk into a room, suck the oxygen out of it, and then just drop a bombshell. And it was, it was very scary to see that. Again, Miana Burring, fucking killing it (laughs) yeah she's great and you're completely right that it was because the students were there and it she needs to have this order because again without order there is chaos and if she doesn't have that and those students buy into what yen's saying then they're done but that does yeah that does lead into the conclave scene which was awesome because so awesome. the personal insults, and I just love how, oh, we need to go to battle. And Vilgefortz is like, well, I'm the only mage that has led people in battle. And Shregobor is just like, yeah, we know. You throw on that silly costume every chance you get. And I just was like, oh, my God, that was just so oh great. He just has to stand there. Because yeah. when they cut back to him, I'm like, yeah, he is at a place here. He does yes. look like someone playing dress up. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the personal insults dug so deep. Because immediately right after that, 
doesn't Taisei say something along the lines of, well, at least he's been doing something that doesn't involve killing little girls who were born on an eclipse. Like she's digging the knife in there too. Like the barbs that were traded back and forth across his table were so good. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Not locking up little girls. It's like, okay, there's a clear cut division. They're on different sides of the table, but that's all well and good. What are we going to do? Oh, Sentry's going to do this. Oh, Nilfgaard's going to do this. And then Fragilla kicks open those doors and comes Bam. in with the righteous word of the white flame. With the white flame. And she lets us know that Nilfgaard has a new ruler now. This is something we had learned two episodes ago as well. Uh, his name is Amir. And that he's doing good things. And again, like you said earlier, it's all about perspective. Fringilla might be reaping the rewards of being on the inside of Nilfgaard, of having bought into the system. The people who are being slaughtered in Sintra, which is intercut into this scene are certainly not reaping those rewards of Emir's uh, policies and his takeover of the throne. But Frangilla comes in here, and I think she says one thing that's really interesting that I want to get your read on. She says, we have differences in how we handle our mages, right? In the North, the Northern mages have this acad- they have their academies, they have the Brotherhood, and they have a system in place. In Nilfgaard, it sounds like they conscript mages against their will. There might be something more going on there too, but it seems like a much more tightly controlled and rigid system. And Frangilla says, well, it, this is just a difference in opinion. We're effectively cousins. We're doing the same thing. And I kind of loved that because these academies are also sort of conscripting mages against their will. Like Yen didn't have a choice. She just got bought. <laughs> Yeah, Yen didn't have the choice before she was a mage. And Vilgefort said it as a reason also to, for Yen to leave with them is saying, we don't have safe passage and they're conscripting mages. So they're making it seem like Nilfgaard, oh, you're a mage? Well, now you're working for us. And Fringilla must be at the head of it. And so they've made it seem like in the show, they make it seem like everybody changes their appearance but they don't because literally only yen has that we saw because a big thing from the book canon is nilfgaard mages if you're a mage operating in nilfgaard you cannot change your appearance and everybody in the north generally does it it makes it seem like every mage has changed their appearance but if you work in nilfgaard in the books or operate in nilfgaard it is illegal against the law to change your appearance i do want to point out it's at this point that, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Stregobor, maybe it was the other guy. Somebody takes some really uncalled for shots against Yen. Like, totally shitting on Yen. <laughs> it's quite dramatic. I mean, Frangilla says, I have Yen to thank for my appointment. I would not have been indoctrinated into this Nilfgaardian system or, you know, learned about the White Flame if she hadn't traded spots with me effectively. And... At this point, Stregobor is like, yeah, fuck yeah. And I mean, if she had gone down there, we wouldn't have this problem right now because she's so incompetent. And I was just like, okay, dude, like <laughs> uncalled for. Well I, love how, mean. well, I love how they do that. And Yen's like, man, I don't get fuck. Burn this place to the ground. I don't care about any of this. And then Stregobor, yeah. Stregobor, like a little child, is like, see, see, she admits it. Look, look. Like, as if she's like tugging at her, uh, tugging at his dad's like robe and being like, oh, they did it. She did it. And stuff like that. I thought that was just great. Yeah. Yeah. This whole conclave scene was so entertaining. So good. So good. Um, so at the end here, Tessia makes one final plea before Stregobor finally calls for a vote. And I think Tessia's plea was really powerful here. And there was a lot of subtext. So she says something along the lines of like, yes, we've not cooperated with Sintra in the past and we stopped trying. And it's now time for us to risk not only our lives, but our pride and try again. And what I thought was interesting here is the camera kept cutting back between Taisea and Yen's reaction to what she's saying. So my read on the subtext here was, yes, Taisea is making this plea with the council at large, with all the mages there in regards to Sintra and Nilfgaard. But on a more personal level, I think Taisea is maybe also trying to reach out to Yen here and saying, hey, we stopped trying with each other. Maybe it's time we swallow our pride, set aside our feelings and our past, and try again. Do you think that was intentional, or do you think I'm just maybe reading too much into some camera cuts? No, I think that's, I think that's a damn good read on that. 
because as we'll see when Taseya does plead <laughs> for her help, she knows, one, they need all the help they can get, and she knows how powerful Yen is, and she's absolutely important to their cause. I mean, necessary to their cause. Yeah. Yeah, she's the best student that she's ever taught, and that that much is true. Yen is obviously a very powerful sorceress, and Taisea recognizes that. So the vote takes place here, and then they, obviously it's unanimous, everybody except maybe Taisea, Vilgefort, some other mages who actually want to in, get involved and help Sintra, vote to just leave Sintra to its fate. And then Yen and Taisea walk out of the room, and here, like you said, Taisea sort of pleads with her and says, hey... Vilgefortz and I are going to go help anyway. Please come with us. And I think it's notable that she says, if not for the Brotherhood, if not for Eratusa, then do it for me. And at this point, I think Yen sort of gets what she wants, maybe? Like, Yen is important to someone. Yen is important to Taisea, and she's asking on a personal level and not just to fight for some cause or for some school that she hates. And she also gets that begging that she's wanted from Tissaia or yeah, not even that. that too. It's not even that. It's also, it's very clear just by Yen being with Vilgefortz and saying, I'm not going there. And then Vilgefortz is like, oh, she said she's the best student. Oh, did she say that now? She clearly wants, I think she wants the acknowledgement from Tissaia, everything that she has done and as good as she is and as important as she is, she wants her value to be recognized and so with this, this is it. And this was Taseya being, okay, you know, I was hard on you. I was probably was too hard. I get that it did that, but let's go on. This is my version of an apology of me saying, <laughs> please come. I'm begging you. This is it. This is me humbling myself. This, it's, this, this is bigger than us, and it's bigger than Eratusa. It's This is literally a fight for the way of life of the continent, or at least the northern continent. All right, we're going to keep this conversation going, but first, a quick break. Hey there, my name's Leo. I'm a producer here at Lore Party, and I wanted to take a minute to tell you about my Last of Us series. Humanity survived, but the world is changed forever. The cordyceps brain infection has spread across the globe. Nevertheless, life goes on. Joel, with his troubled past, and Ellie, one of the only hopes for humanity's future, are forced to make difficult decisions. Dodging cannibal cults and militant revolutionaries, clickers and bloaters, on the wildest road trip of the 2030s. Tune into our Last of Us episodes, where my co-host Lawrence and I discuss the ultimate moral questions the game posits, the characters who bring the world to life, whether we meet them or not, and of course, Jimmy Cooper. Hop on over to our Lore Party feed and search for The Last of Us. Well, that's enough for me. Back to your show. Let's move on to our final key moment of this episode, and that's the story we have yet to talk about. It's Geralt's visit to Sintra, and it's Geralt confronting Calanthe and Iced and trying to work with Mausak to finally get his child surprise. I think what's notable here is that this is completely a show edition, right? This is not an adaptation of a short story. This entire episode, actually, isn't an adaptation of any sort. Yeah, Geralt was not in Sintra when this all went down. It's also a callback to the pilot, the first episode, when Calanth is in there dying and saying he's in the stable or he's somewhere. And they come back and they're like, he's gone. And they never say who it is. And I remember first seeing that, I'm like, well, who the hell is that? Again, because from the books, Geralt's not here. So I never thought that that was him. And so a big reason in general about this, enti this entire episode has at least nothing I can immediately think of. Nothing comes from the books. It's all show created. And I think that's why I like it so much. It's because yeah, I'm watching it and I'm not looking out for, ooh, who's, ooh is this person going to show up? Ooh, how are they going to do this? Oh, I think that I'm just looking at it going, well, shit, none of this. This is completely different. I'm just going to enjoy and see where the hell this goes. Yeah, I agree. I think I was less on the offensive when it came to 
adaptation mode, you know, I was, I wasn't looking for those changes or looking for how they adapted one thing to another. This was all so new. And I, I assume I felt like what a lot of show only watchers feel like when they're watching the show that like everything is new and you're just waiting to see what happens. And I truly enjoyed this episode. I think this was one of the stronger episodes of this season. And it also makes me trust the showrunners, you know, it, I realize that they know the world well enough. They have love and respect for the characters and they can put together a story that doesn't need to be based on something in the novels. They can expand the world in a way that still respects the source material, but adds to it. And we saw a lot of that here in this episode. And And this trip to Sintra from Geralt has been something that while most people have been okay with, there have been some comments around the internet that this was bad simply because Geralt was never in Sintra in the novels, but I thought this was great. We got to get this amazing confrontation scene between Geralt and Calanthe, and we got to see Geralt's sort of change of heart, right? Like, we should take a minute to talk about that. Geralt is a changed man here. He is here looking for his law of surprise, the thing he's been running from for episodes, for years. And he's there to own up to it. But I do think that he's still scoffing at destiny, per se, because when him and Mausek are meeting and those assassins are coming and he's got that knife to Mausek's throat saying, well, I guess they're going to kill us both. And Mausek is like, hey, they're going to kill us, they're going to kill us. And Geralt just, with that wry smile, blame destiny. <laughs> just, you can blame destiny on it. I'm like, so he is still scoffing at that, but he's owning up. I don't think he's owning up to destiny. I think he's owning up to an actual child that he feels he needs to at least check on and keep safe. And I think combined with his conversation with Yen before the dragon hunt and combined with the breakup of Yen and Borch's words and then seeing the Nilfgaardian army, he understands, okay, I did this. I need to take care of my responsibility and then destiny be damned. Whatever happens, happens, but I need to do what I need to do. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I, I don't think he has become a true believer, right? His change of heart is not so extreme that he is now like, yeah, law of surprise, baby, I'm in. Like He has not bought into destiny, but he has come to understand that he needs to stop running away from a responsibility. And if he has tied himself to a child, then he needs to do what he can to ensure that this child is safe. This child is now tied to him in some way, whether he believes it or not. And I think that's what he's here to do. He's here to effectively take some sort of responsibility, whether it's simply checking in to make sure Siri is safe, or when he finds out the Nilfgaardian invasion is coming, to try and convince Calanthe to take Siri away and protect her, even temporarily, and then bring her back once the, the danger has passed. And Calanthe, of course, seemingly agrees to this in the very first scene. And then we meet Calanthe again, talking to a false Siri. <laughs> she is not here to play games. <laughs> it's speaking, She's about to try a bait and switch. Speaking of someone who scoffs at destiny, uh, Queen Calanthe of Sintra, at this point in time, is still not having any of destiny's shit. Yeah. And I enjoyed the reveal of the false Siri. Because they just, they don't really show her face in the show. They show Calanthe speaking like, oh, she's going to do, oh, no, that's not the same actress. Hold up. And then <laughs> the character in the show was not trained well enough by Calanthe in them because she freezes up immediately. And Geralt's other sign of bullshit detector, you know, he's got Axie, he's got Yurden, and then he's got bullshit detector. He casts that sign real quick and is like, all right, well, something's not here or something's wrong here. <laughs> yeah. And, and he realizes, and we, I, I did like how, how we connected that first scene where they're playing like bow knuckle or whatever in the yard. He goes out to the courtyard. He sees this little girl run up to her friends, say goodbye, and then bow to Princess Cirilla. And he's like, oh shit. Calanthe's playing games and he rushes back in and of course he confronts Calanthe and I thought this scene where they're sort of walking down that hallway was extremely well written and so so good at this point Calanthe is just so done with Geralt 
And yeah, she's just, not even putting up a facade anymore. Yeah, she's it's, done. it's almost Henry II-esque. I'll get a little history nerd on you here. It's only Henry II-esque going, well, no one rid me of this turbulent witcher. And then as <laughs> yeah. Geralt is praying in a church, three knights come up and smash his head against the altar. But no, go look at that. That pulls a Thomas a Beckett there. So they keep hitting back. But yeah, Calanthe's like, she needs family, witcher. The hell do you know about that? You fucking lonely ass bastard. You know, it's just like, dang, but they're going at it. They're going at it. And I, that family line was so good. I had to pause the episode because I was just like, ah, they said it. They said it. Like the story of the Witcher in the games, in the books, and now in the TV show is about family. It's about the family you choose. And Calanthe finally just says it here to, to Geralt in the hallway. What do you know about family? You're a lone wanderer. We even learn a little bit about Geralt's actual family, and we get a sneak peek into his past. Evidently, Geralt had a mother who abandoned him. And this is so central, and I think it's something we all have to remember. This is not a story about politics. It's not a story about the Nilfgaardian invasion. It's not about magic and sorcerers. This is a story about family. It's about people without a family finding one, creating one, choosing one, and coming together. And I want to hit on what you mentioned there about family and choosing your family. And this can, again, be something, because this is right up my alley, and this can be an off-season thing, about the philosophical differences in destiny and predestination and fate. Fate is what ends up. Whatever's going to happen, like, that's your fate. So whatever's going to happen, say, in my life now— that's my fate. But my destiny can be what I want it to be and what I can strive for. And if I want to do something, and let's just say, and it's not it, but if it's I'm going to quit everything and I'm going to become a professional writer and a professional podcaster, and I will try to do that. And if I get it, that is my destiny because that's what I've tried to do. Now, if I fail at that and it becomes something else, then that is my fate. And so here, while they are they are not biologically connected, Geralt and Siri, destiny is pulling them together because they are trying to be together. And I don't believe that it is magic or anything they can't help. Geralt can choose to not go after Siri, and then Siri likewise can be like, "Oh, I don't care what Queen Calantha said." I'm not going to go after him. And so I do think there's a difference between that that you hit up right there. Yeah, we, we talked about this in the banquet scene. Pavetta had to choose to fall in love with Dooney. She had that agency. And I think that, you, that was an excellent way to put it, Brett. Like the, the difference between destiny and fate is agency. You have choice. And ultimately, it is the family you choose here. And we'll, we'll see in future episodes and future seasons what... Uh, what happens with that theme, but it is a central and very important theme to the story here, and especially in the novels as well. I do also love Geralt's response to Calanthe here. So Calanthe has obviously uh, told Geralt effectively to shut the fuck up and get out of her way, and Geralt's response is iconic. He says, you lecture me about a mother's love, but offer up someone else's daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're so uh, good. they're uh, just roasting each other left and right here, just burning. Absolutely. And then Calanthe, she says, "Queen to all of Sintra, grandmother to one." If if I had to pick a couple of iconic Calanthe lines, this is up there with not responding to Siri saying, "I love you, Grandma." <laughs> yeah, and just cutting right to the chase and being like, "Go find Geralt. Get out of here. I'm dying." <laughs> Like, get out of here. There's bigger things at stake. And so I'll ask you, Calanthe says that, but do her actions, was she putting Sintra first or was she putting Siri first based on her actions and defending and doing everything like that? Oh, this was totally selfish. My, my read on this was that she just wants to get Geralt out of her hair she doesn't want to deal with this law of surprise bullshit, and she doesn't want to give up her granddaughter, which, to be fair, is it like a 
that is a normal and okay emotion to have to love your granddaughter and not want to give her up to somebody that you know just travels around alone and <laughs> fights monsters and is constantly getting into danger. I think it's this is something that I actually had some friends ask me about. They were very confused about the law of surprise and why it was so important for Geralt to take Ciri and why the heck Calanthe and Iced would even agree to it. Because who, who the heck wants to give up their, you know, their granddaughter or their daughter? And um, that, I think, the answer to that is effectively that, like, this is a fantasy story and there are powerful forces at work, particularly destiny, that um, there will be repercussions. That's the thing Mousak keeps getting at. He's like, you, if you give Siri to Geralt, maybe we will survive. Maybe all of this bad that's happening, this Nilfgaardian invasion, maybe destiny will be on our side if you allow it to happen. Uh, so I think that may be confusing to show watchers. Like, why the heck would Calanthe ever agree to this? I would never give up my granddaughter. But I think the answer here is that, like, this is a fantasy story and that, there, that there's other power at work here. Well, another thing to hit on also... They are a literal royal family, and as far as we know, Calanthe does not have any brothers or sisters. We don't know of any other, even cousins of a royal family. So literally, it is only Ciri for, it, for the line to be left. So if she dies, if Ciri dies, Calanthe dies, that is it for the royal family. Yeah, yeah, Calanthe says as much at the start of this scene. She says... Siri will stay here with me until she takes my throne. Yeah. You know, Siri is obviously next in line. She's a princess. And yeah, I, I think it's a mixed bag. It's part political, part personal. Because Iced does say that Calanthe was heartbroken. Calanthe herself says that Siri is the only thing I have left of Pavetta, the only thing I have left of my daughter. So there's definitely a lot of emotions at play here for Calanthe. But guaranteed, one of those emotions is fuck off, Geralt. <laughs> yeah. That's the number one emotion coming from her, our feeling. Yeah. But let's finally wrap up with our big picture thoughts. This is the penultimate episode, Brett. We only have one more to go this season. What have your thoughts been thus far on the season and this episode in particular? I agreed with you that the last couple of episodes were okay at times, and I love certain parts of them, but overall... They seem kind of lacking, and I almost want to say, and I've used this word a ton with series storylines, so if you're binge listening to this, you've heard me say this, stalling or meandering, if you will. And this, this here is, no, we are pushing, it's called Before a Fall. It's giving you a penultimate title, but it's very clearly setting up that shit is about to hit the fan and go down in the next episode. And we touched on it earlier that there's almost nothing here that is adapted. It's almost all new. And I love that. And I think that's why I really enjoyed this episode. While I thought the last couple kind of meandered and kind of did, uh, da, da, I thought this was great. And it's the first part of a strong finish to the season. Yes, I agree with you 100%. I loved that this wasn't adapted. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but it's ba it bears repeating. It gives me a lot of trust and hope in the showrunners and in the writer's room and with the cinematographers and the entire team that creates the show. It gives me hope that they know what they're doing, that they have love and respect for the source material, and that they are not afraid to go outside the source material and add their own additions to the world. It only makes the world richer, right? Like, I never understand people who are like, why isn't this a one-for-one -one adaptation? How dare you mess with it? Why? You know, it adds to the world that we all love so much, right? We're all here creating this podcast, listening to this podcast, watching this TV show, reading the books, because l we love the world and we should want more of it. And this episode gave us more of it. So spectacular episode. For me personally, of the ones we've watched so far, and we haven't discussed the uh, finale yet, of course, but of the episodes we have discussed so far on the podcast, this is like top three for me. I thought it was really good. I loved watching Yen back in Eratusa. There was so much subtext there, so many emotions at play. I loved watching Calanthe struggle with Destiny and her arrogance and G Geralt butting heads with her, and I thought all of that was very well written and overall a very fun episode. 
And the final thing I'll say about this episode and the season thus far, actually, is something that you sent to me that you tweeted. The fact that Yen is, like, carrying this season. Yen's arc, which is entirely a show addition for the most part, has been spectacular. It was great to see her origin story, which we never got in the books. It was great to see her time in Eratusa. And then it was wonderful here to sort of see the close of the loop of that arc and see her come full circle, go back to Eratusa. I think Yen's story was the best part of this season. And it's Yen as the outsider or the underdog. Because like you said, when I tweeted that out, it was watching this episode again. It just dawned on me. It was so obvious once I thought about it. But of just how much when I, re- especially on the rewatch, of just everything Yens does sticks with me. And so much of Geralt, Geralt doesn't change too much. And I think there was a purpose to that. I think next season, we're not going to see as wooden a Geralt from Henry Cavill. I think we're going to get a little more emotion and a little bit more, even just his voice in general. I think we're going to see more from him in that sense. I think this season for him was... I'm just kind of jaded. I'm all that. But now he has something to fight for. Now he has something to care about. But the episodes from Yen that I just was like, eh, which was five and six, is when she was at her most powerful or her most arrogant, you can say. And so, again, she's been humbled in here. She's broken up with Geralt, rightfully, with what she thought. Ishrid has rejected her. And she's in full on, I'm going to say what's on my mind. And I don't like this in full on just badass mode. And yeah. it has just absolutely carried this season completely. Because without her, without her story arc, like if you're just looking at series and just Geralt's, it's just kind of like, oh, okay. Like it's good action. It's good in that sense. But hers actually is the humanity and the characterization is so well-rounded and has been so meaningful that it's just been fantastic. Absolutely. Yen is the heart of this season, and it really shows. Well, Brett, podcasts are podcasts. Lesser, greater, middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract, and it's time to collect our reward. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the path.